This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for March 8, 2019. In this week's episode, we look at ways to maintain your online privacy with tips on secure browsing, a few handy extensions, information on private browsing, and just how secure is email. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software, exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. On a recent episode, we talked about the fact that Apple removed a do not track setting from the Safari web browser. And we've gotten a couple of emails and comments on articles on the Intego Mac security blog asking people, well, how do I maintain my privacy if all these features are gone? And we pointed out uh, one thing about the do not track is that it doesn't really work because the companies on the web, they just ignore it. And Apple has other technologies that are designed to prevent websites from tracking you too closely. But this is a vast area, and there are all sorts of elements that you can use, uh, ways that you can browse, ways you can work with email, etc. So this week, we want to talk about how to maintain your online privacy. And who better to talk about it than the inimitable Josh Long, who lives in an unknown location in a bunker, wears tin hats, and keeps a mask on his face all the time. I wonder if people think that's really true when I say stuff like that. Maybe it is. I can neither confirm nor deny the truth of those statements. You like to be mysterious. Privacy is a big deal, and we see it every week with Facebook and Google and all these other companies. There's data dumps that we're constantly talking about, your email and passwords, and there's Facebook slurping up data everywhere they can, and there's Google snarfing down data at every possibility. So where does one even begin? I think the two main interfaces that a user has with the internet and with companies on the internet is a web browser and their email. We'll leave individual apps aside for a moment. We'll talk about that later. But the web browser is the thing that you're using every day to access the internet. And the email is, well, something you're constantly sending and receiving email. So let's start with web browsing. Maintaining privacy on the web is notoriously difficult because when you load a website, it can be full of little bits and pieces of code that record information about your computer, your browsing history, uh, maybe your username, um, and then these little trackers that parse information and send them off to some nefarious server under a volcano on an island someplace where they can be mixed together to create a profile so companies can sell ads that are perfectly targeted to you. Is there any way to get around all this? Well, there are some things that you can do to to improve your privacy when you're browsing. First of all, you have to figure out who you're trying to be to remain private from. So if you're worried about Google, well, obviously don't use Google's browser. Or don't search with Google or don't sign into a Google account. Exactly. Exactly right. So so th- think about like who you feel is the greatest enemy to your privacy and kind of work from there. Um, if you think it's a service like Google or Facebook, then keep in mind whether you're logged in to one of those services uh, whenever you're doing anything uh, in your web browser. So let's say that on my Safari that I'm using now, I'm logged into Facebook and Google. But if I were to launch Chrome and I'm not logged in there... That means that I can surf the web with Chrome or Firefox or another browser, and there's no relationship between the two browsers, right? 
Right. That, that is true. And that's something I think is a really important thing to, to consider. When you want to keep your browsing sessions completely separate from each other, there's a couple of things that you can do. One is to use um, private browsing, which, which we'll talk about in a moment. And another thing to do is just use different browsers. If you've uh, got a sufficient amount of RAM in your computer or you don't have a million tabs open, it's probably not a problem to run two or three browsers at a time if it makes sense to do that. Obviously, we don't necessarily recommend leaving three browsers open all the time unless that works really well for your workflow. I typically have two browsers open at a time. And also on the Mac, you can choose what your default browser is, the one that will open when you click a link. Uh, you can't really do that on iOS. It's always going to open in Safari. Yes, on iOS, if you want to open a link in another browser, because you cannot set something other than Safari as your default browser, you need to actually copy a link and then go and paste it into another browser. So you have to you have to sort of be careful because there's, uh, in some cases on an iPhone, you might... Um, you have to tap lightly and hold in order to to copy a link because if you tap hard if you press hard on it then it might actually open up a preview right there um which is using essentially safari's engine force touch yeah force touch yeah, that's the force touch feature that uses safari to display a page and then you swipe up and you can open it or you can copy or whatever. Yes. So yeah, on, on iOS, it's not as simple anymore as it used to be. Right. So this is a bit more complicated on iOS, but you can do that. If you lightly touch and hold on links, most of the time that will let you copy that link and then you can go and paste it into another browser if you'd like to do that. Okay, so multiple browsers, that's one option. You can also add some extensions to your browsers that will help protect your privacy within certain limitations. One that uh, I think everybody should install is called HTTPS Everywhere. Uh, that extension is available from the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is dedicated to you know maintaining people's privacy on the internet. HTTPS Everywhere, the way that it works essentially is e the EFF, the developers of, of this extension, have gone through lots and lots of popular websites and they've looked to see which sites default to HTTPS all the time, which ones you can optionally go to those sites over HTTPS. And what they've done is uh, they've designed this extension so that anytime that you're trying to get to a site, uh, let's say maybe a, a web page that you're visiting has some embedded resources from a page that is available over HTTPS, but your web page is requesting it over HTTP, a non-secure link. Um, what this extension will do is it'll automatically convert that HTTP into HTTPS behind the scenes um, without any interruption. Um, it just makes sure that that's a secure connection for you. Of course, the only problem is it's not available for Safari. Yes. So you can get this for Firefox and you can get this for Chrome, um, but it's not available for Safari. But Chrome, that's Google. I thought Google was evil and we want to avoid Google. <laughs> well, as I said, it, it depends a lot on who you view as the main enemy to your privacy. The most evil. <laughs> yeah. So I honestly, I mean, for as much as we, we sort of um, tease Google on this show, I, I think that... Um, 
you have to 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 consider what what the trade off is. I mean, a lot of people who listen to this show, myself included, have G- a Gmail email address. So we're we're potentially giving a lot of information to Google um, already. So just I, I mean, I guess keep this in mind. Be aware that yes, you know, Google is using you as the way that they make money. Um, they're using the way things you search for and things like that. So. Um, be aware of it. If, if you don't feel like that's a significant threat to your privacy, but maybe certain other things are, then, you know, that's just a consideration. Right. A good example is your search engine. And we've talked in the past about using DuckDuckGo, for example, as an alternative search engine. Maybe you don't want Google knowing you've got some kind of medical condition. You don't want Google knowing about this because they may end up selling the data to an insurance company. And that, at least in the U.S., would be a problem. Um, so you could use Google's web browser, but use DuckDuckGo to search, or you could just get rid of Google altogether. Um, Let's briefly talk about web browsers. We've got Safari, we've got Google Chrome, we've got Firefox, um, Opera. I think the advantages to Chrome and Firefox are the availability of plugins and extensions. Uh, Opera doesn't offer as many, do they? And Safari is very limited as to what you can install. That's right. That um, and so because of that, if if you're if one of the main things that you're doing with your browser is making sure that you're as safe as possible, and there's certain particular extensions that you want, then Firefox is probably the browser you want to use, or possibly Chrome. Okay. So, what other browser extensions are important to maintain privacy? Well, we've talked before about how there's. Um, some extensions that will do things like blocking tracking and uh, and certain types of intrusive advertising and things like that. The extension that I typically use for this is uBlock Origin, um, and this is um, you know it's pretty standard. It, there are some advanced features that you can use, but if you just install and uh, and don't do any special configuration, it will actually do a pretty good job of blocking a lot of tracking requests and things like that without, you know, interrupting your typical browsing activities. It's not going to, in most cases, it's not going to prevent a website from doing the things that you need it to do. UBlock Origin, um, I'm just looking, it seems to be only available in beta for Safari. And when I go to the web page, it's on GitHub. And I'm seeing things like assets, dist, doc, tools, um, I don't, how would it, what do I do with this? I don't know how to use this. Do I have to like be a developer to use this? UBlock Origin is primarily designed to to block tracking assets, um, meaning that if there's some trackers built into a web page, um, it's going to um, to look for those and try to block them for you. It's not an ad blocker. They they make sure to make that clear that that's not its purpose. Although its primary purpose is not necessarily to block ads, uh, uBlock Origin will block some advertisements if their intent is to track you. It blocks trackers, and it also intends to block malware sites. And it does this um, by pulling from a number of different lists. And you'll notice that other extensions do the same thing. They'll, in fact, some of them even use the same lists. There's one called Easy List or Easy Privacy. There's uh, there's one called Peter Lowe's Ad Slash Tracking Slash Malware List. Um, and, and so there's a, a lot of different extensions that will um, use these different resources. So basically they're relying on other people to do the work of finding those tracking related sites uh, and domains. And then they're using those lists to as their block list, sort of a blacklist 
um, for when you're browsing the web, it's going to block those resources by default for you. Okay, so another similar uh, extension is Ghostery, which is what I've been using for a long time. And Ghostery is essentially a tracker blocker. It does, as you say, block some ads and things like that, but it's more designed to block the kind of web content that tracks your profile and sends it back to servers. Now, what's interesting is that I've got the two of them installed in Safari here, and I've just gone to the CNN website. Ghostery tells me that there are 23 trackers, and these include things like Bing ads for advertising, Chartbeat analytics, Google Tag Manager, etc., etc. Ublock Origin tells me there are 91 requests block on the page. 91. And I'm looking at and I see things like Bing and CNN.com and DoubleClick.net, which is uh, an ad service, Google ad services as well. How do I know if one of these is overkill? And how do you know if these are going to prevent you from browsing and seeing everything you want to on the web? Well, I guess the main way to to find out whether it's going to prevent you from doing stuff is to install one of these extensions if, and then try to go to your regular sites. And if there, if you find that there are certain things that don't load, um, a lot of times what you can do with these extensions, um, if uh, it is to whitelist particular parts of of, of a page that might be getting blocked. Um, sometimes with some of these types of extensions, uh, there will be a little icon embedded within the page. Like maybe, for example, they block a video from running um, because they thought that might be, you know, ad or tracking related. And sometimes what you can do then is click on the sort of little preview of that video or a little icon related to that browser extension, and it'll start playing the video for you. So um, depending on on what... um, you know, what extension you're choosing, the options are a little bit different, but there's usually some ways to whitelist a particular page and say, you know what, any resources on this page, I'm totally fine with it using those. Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about private browsing in web browsers. We're going to talk about protecting your email and a couple of other techniques that you can use to maintain your online privacy. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac, or switch to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intego's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get 50% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. And then use promo code Intego Podcast at checkout to save 50%. That's Intego Podcast to save 50% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. Okay, so before the break, we were talking about 
things you can do with your web browser to enhance your privacy. But there's one that Josh mentioned we didn't cover. It's called private browsing. Private browsing is very interesting. In any recent web browser, you can open a special private browsing window that is totally private. It will, of course, provide use for some cookies, but it won't save them after your session is over. It blocks a lot of activity. It blocks a lot of tracking possibilities. But the real advantage is that when you close it, everything you've used in that session gets deleted. Right. Um, and, and Google, by the way, calls this incognito mode. So if you happen to see that in your browser instead of private browsing, it, it's, it does the same thing. Um, the, the, and I suspect that there's probably something about private browsing that Google didn't want to, you know, use that terminology, but, uh, in any case, yeah. So that's, that's the difference there. But, uh, in a private browsing or incognito mode, essentially the, the main thing that you need to understand about this mode is it does not necessarily protect your privacy in every sense from every site that you visit. But the idea is that you're, opening up a browsing session that you want to keep separate from your main browsing session where you might be logged into Google or Facebook or other services like that. So if, if you just want to look something up really quick, but you don't want uh, it to be associated with your identity on any of those other services, then you can open up a new private browsing window and you can do your search there or pull up a particular web page there or things like that. Right. It's important to know that the way cookies work, they're shared across every window and tab that's open in your browser. And what private browsing does is it sort of quarantines that window. Uh, sandboxes would be the best term. That means that private browsing session cannot access these shared cookies that are already on your computer. Right. Uh, now, another really important key point here, I think we mentioned once a long time ago, but it's worth mentioning again, since we're talking about private browsing windows. If you have multiple private browsing windows open in the same browser, all of those private browsing windows are treated like they're all part of the same session. And so... Um, that's something to just be aware of because if you want one private browsing window to not know what's going on in another private browsing window, then you need to use two different browsers um, or just stop what you're doing with with one particular session, close that last private browsing window, then open up a new private browsing window if you want to keep them separate. Right. So one reason you might want to use this is many of us have multiple accounts for certain services. You may have a personal Google account, uh, a Google account for your work, and maybe another one for some reason, or maybe you have multiple Twitter accounts. There are many reasons that you have multiple accounts. And using the private browsing window means that you can log into a different account than your main browser. But what it would mean is that, let's say your normal Safari, you're logged into Google account one, private browsing window, you're logged into Google account two. And if you open another private browsing window, you can't log into Google account three because it's sharing that information for Google account two. Right. So th this is another use case that's kind of a, a little aside from privacy, but but um, but you can also do it for for that as well to have multiple accounts logged into in different windows. And and I have used it for that. It's it is kind of handy to be able to uh, it without having to start a whole new browser. You can also use the private browsing or incognito functionality that way as well.
And you can do this on iOS, at least with Safari. I'm not that familiar with other browsers on iOS. I assume you can. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, since, since we're talking about iOS browsers, um, I've mentioned before Brave is the browser that I like to use on iOS. And um, that browser uh, is also available actually for Mac. And it's designed with privacy in mind. All, all of the, the main features and functionality of the Brave browser um, are designed to to protect you. And again, w- within a particular understanding that you know when you sign into services that uh, you know other web pages uh, are going to be able to see cookies and all those kind of things. So so I mean, there there are some privacy features built into it to help you stay protected. And so that is an option actually for for the Mac. Um, if you want to just try Brave, you can you can try that instead of using uh, an extension like uBlock Origin or Ghostery. Brave will, will kind of already do a lot of the things that those extensions do. Okay, we'll have an article on the Intego Mac Security blog about private browsing, showing you how you can use this and how practical it is. There'll be a link in the show notes. The next element, of course, is email, and we all use email. Email is a bit of a problem because... No matter what, unless you've encrypted your email, someone can read it somewhere. Uh, You send an email. If I send an email to Josh, it's going to bounce through maybe a half a dozen servers in different places on the Internet. And each server is going to read that data, write that data to store it, to send it on. And it's going to be keeping that data. And it's like that password for that super secret site that I sent to Josh last week. It's probably replicated in 25 different locations on the Internet. Protecting your email, making your email totally private is really difficult. That's true. Um, And that's because the way that email was designed was not security and privacy first. (laughs) This was sort of an add-on. In fact, really, the whole internet was sort of based on this concept of, you know, let's share information with each other. And then only later did uh, the internet, you know, become something that people started using for banking and, you know, anything that, you know, requires good security and privacy. It was, this was all sort of tacked on later. And while web browsers have kind of been able to evolve and, and adopt new technologies and improve in, in that sense, um, mail still really hasn't evolved in, in much the same way, unfortunately. So with email, you do have the capability and have had this for, you know, for decades now, the ability to have a secure connection between your device and the mail server, which is great. But the problem is that, as Kirk was talking about, once that mail gets to your mail server, now it's got to be sent along to, uh, you know, to various other mail servers to eventually get to the server of the recipient. And they may be on a different email service. So now you're relying on all of those points in between to hang on to this email and it's not being stored in an, in an encrypted manner. Transaction between you and your mail server when you first send the email, that's secure. And when you open up the email, that may be secure, but it's all the parts in between where that email may be getting stored in, in a way that's not secure. Right. So the only advantage you have if you've got a secure connection to your mail server is that can prevent a man-in-the-middle attack where you are. Let's say you're in a hotel, and that can prevent someone from intercepting your email as you're sending it out there, but you don't know where it's going to go afterwards. There are some email services that are fully encrypted. 
this isn't very easy to use. It's not for everyone, but there's one in particular you want to talk about? Yeah, a lot of people um, who are really into security and privacy use ProtonMail. Um, and this is a service that the, the idea behind it is uh, that you can have emails that are fully encrypted from one end to the other, and they're always encrypted. Now, in practice, there's a problem with this, because if you're sending an email from your ProtonMail account to somebody with a Gmail account or any other email service, um, well, you can't really have that email encrypted when it gets to them, because... Uh, they're not going to be able to read it because Google or Yahoo... Unless or, they're using ProtonMail as well. Right, right. So they would need to be using this the, the same ProtonMail service, which, of course, not very many people use. Only the real security and privacy geeks, for the most part, are using ProtonMail. Like Mail. you. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they're... So, so ProtonMail is great in theory, and I, I would say that if you know that you need to have secure email conversations on a regular basis with, say, a business partner or a friend of yours, and you need to make sure that those stay private, um, you, you can do one of two things. You can either use a secure messaging service instead. Um, for example, Signal is uh, is a good one to use. WhatsApp um, also uses the same protocol as Signal. Uh, I don't like it as well, but um, but it pretty much uses the same uh, encryption technology. And even Apple Messages is is encrypted from end to end. Yeah, you can use iMessage as well. I, I, I still prefer Signal because it's a lot clearer. They make well known what technologies they're using behind the scenes, whereas with iMessage, and there's a little bit of ambiguity. So that's one way to get around this problem of email is not secure. Or the other way to do it is uh, if you really think that email is the best format for uh, for secure communications for a particular task, then if both of you are using ProtonMail, then you get the advantage of end-to-end and, you know, both of you have, uh, have the same service. And so you know that uh, if you trust ProtonMail, uh, which a lot of people do, then you'll know that uh, when your email is stored on the email server, it's actually also being stored in an encrypted manner. So other people who, for example, work at the company can't see your emails. Right. Now, the disadvantage is you can't use your standard email client. You have to use their client. Um, so that's a limitation for a lot of people. Um, I want to throw out another idea. When you connect to your email server to send an email or when you load your webmail, it's a secure connection. So what if I were to send an email to your Gmail address via the web in my web browser and you were to read it via the web in your web browser? The only possible insecure element there is it being on Gmail, correct? So I, I guess in that case, since, since you're both using the same service in that scenario, um, the only... Uh, thing that you might need to be concerned about is how Google is storing those emails. Are they storing those emails in a secure manner? Um, I don't know what Google's servers look like behind the scenes. Okay, so that leads into a question that I told you before the show. I was going to ask you a question, but I didn't want you to tell you what it was. Um, I have my personal email domain hosted on Google using G Suite. So that's the $5 a month thing. You get Google Drive, Google Docs, all that sort of stuff. Um, I've been hesitant about the fact that my email is hosted on Google, but Google claims that for paying customers, they're not reading the email, they're not scanning it, they're not showing ads, they're HIPAA compliant, which means that they have to meet really stringent security standards. So am I safer 
hosting my domain with Google than, say, Joe's email company. And I seem to be a lot safer than a standard Gmail account, right? Yeah, I, I, I would say that certainly compared to Joe's email company, uh, I think Google can do a lot better job um, uh, b- because Google is a big company. They've been doing this, you know, they've been doing email for a long time. Um, obviously, there are a lot of um, people and nation state actors, you know, who might be trying to get into Google. But because of that, they've had to really harden their services, meaning make them a lot more secure by default. And you don't know about Joe's email service or even, you know, whatever email service might be provided by, you know, a lot of times when you buy a domain, your, your own dot com, uh, they'll offer you uh, some sort of email service. And um, these kind of bundled things, I, I don't really want to trust those as much because I don't know what kind of um, security practices they use behind the scenes. So in that, in that case, I would prefer to use Google. Okay, I'm going to link in the show notes to a PDF white paper that I was looking at earlier about Google, uh, where they talk about the security on Gmail. Um, but I just want to rephrase my question. I'm, my concern was the fact that Google scans everyone's emails in order to get data about ads. Um, and what it seems to me is that if you're paying for a hosted Gmail account like I am, then they don't scan your emails. Right. Well, that seems to be the case. And so I guess <laughs> you're trusting Google. But uh, of course, if Google really were doing that and said that they weren't explicitly, then um, obviously they'd be in really, really big trouble and would have to pay all kinds of yeah. enormous fines and there would be huge lawsuits and all those sort of things. Two other email tips. You may not want to have the same email for everything. And most email services let you create lots of email addresses or aliases. Create individual emails for different services. Maybe create one email to use with Facebook, another to use with Google, another to use with, I don't know, that forum where you go to talk about your favorite game. And also create a catch-all email address that you use just for signing up on websites. When you go to a website just to get some info, you know, a newsletter or to get a coupon for a sale or something, don't use your normal email address. Create something like, don't spam me at my domain name.com or something like that. Right. Um, yeah. If you have your own domain, it's, it's certainly a lot easier to set up um, multiple uh, email aliases for yourself. Um, if you aren't just quite as uh, sophisticated as to have your own domain uh, with, with your own, you know, um, email, then you can uh, at least sign up for, you know, multiple free accounts. Um, you could sign up for ProtonMail accounts, um, you know, or, or Google accounts if you trust them, uh, you know, or, or any other service. Well, you can make aliases. iCloud lets you make three aliases. I don't know how many you can make with Gmail. So an alias is, is a different address instead of Josh at hisdomain.com. It would be Josh2 or Josh3 at hisdomain.com, but they come into the same mailbox. So what it means is that a website or a tracker isn't able to connect that address to your main address to create a profile of you. Yeah. I'm not sure whether Google technically lets you create aliases, but, uh, for, for personal, you know, individual accounts, but what you can do, that's essentially the same kind of thing is, um, when you add periods, the period character to, uh, any part of the, the first part of your email address. So let's say that my email address is, that one cool guy at gmail.com. I could have my email address be that dot one dot cool dot guy at gmail.com. And that will also get to you. So you can add periods in any 
place in any number that you want. And so if you've got some really sophisticated system worked out where you know that, you know, um, that dot, 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 one cool guy at gmail.com is what I use with my Facebook account. Um, well, you can have separate email addresses uh, for different services in that way. Okay, we're almost out of time, but we just want to mention one more thing, and that's use a VPN. Uh, I'll link in the show notes to an episode we did about uh, using VPNs with someone from CyberGhost, who is one of Intego's partners. A VPN means that all your traffic is encrypted between where you are and that particular server. Now, it's not total privacy because once you get to that server, uh, you know, you're sending an email, it goes to other servers, etc. But at least that means between you and whatever server you're accessing, no one can get a hold of your data. And as we talked about on that episode, this is something that you definitely want to use anytime that you're in a public place or on a network that you don't necessarily trust. Okay. Um, Josh is off to the RSA security conference and next week we'll hear about some of the interesting presentations that were there until then, Josh, stay secure. All right. Stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac podcast, the voice of Mac security. With your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software intego.com